0: So we'll get those food companies that come to us and say, this is an ingredient we're looking at. Do you have any or can you get any? And We, we have those conversations and you know, go back to the farmer so that we can get it raised and put it into the food chain. I think one of those things that's really happening today with food companies is the discussion around regenerative agriculture, climate-friendly products, sustainability. If you look now, these major food companies are making a statement and saying, you know, Mars, for instance, has said, we're going to demand sustainable food chains for our ingredients into the products. Walmart just recently, take rice, for instance, they've come out and said, 2025, 100% of our rice will need to be regenerative, sustainable rice.
1: It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Today, we're gonna be talking about grains, changes that are taking place within grain production across the country. And I'm really happy to welcome the president and CEO of Columbia Grain, Jeff Van Pivenage. Jeff, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. I'm anxious to see what's on your mind and what's happening with grain production and what are the changes that you're grappling with with the industry? I think for us, there is more discussion about
0: what's good for the ground. How do we produce different products on the farm? so through our footprint we're primarily washington idaho montana north dakota and if you look at washington idaho and montana it's wheat growing areas and north dakota has become corn soybeans and wheat third Mm -hmm. so but what we're really seeing is a lot more specialty crops that are making their way into um, into the crop rotations that are out there and that becomes about how do we preserve the soil more and there's also growing markets for those products as well if we go back uh go back to 2000 the year 2000 in montana they grew hardly any peas lentils chickpeas today it's the largest state in the nation for growing peas lentils and chickpeas
1: you know, i i wonder about when those changes take place when that light goes off on a farmer in montana that's only maybe grown wheat forever um what have, what causes that to take place i mean I, I assume that there's a there's a market incentive but uh how do you how do you see that happening do they see a neighbor's putting it in saying gee i i to look into that and then they start penciling it out and figure they could make more money uh switching yes that's
0: that's where it becomes uh a factor for them you, you know 2005 is. I got a call from a farmer in Northeast Montana who said, if you guys will start buying these products from us, we will start growing them. And so it became about how do we create a market for that and how do we bring their products to market? So we were out there, one of the first ones in the in the area to start doing that and they responded. Our initial fear, because we were a wheat company, was, gosh, we're going to lose wheat acres. and we're a wheat business and we're a wheat exporting business. And what became of it was farmers went into continuous cropping situations. So instead of following their ground for a year, they started putting peas and lentils in in that year. And that all started in northeast Montana, western North Dakota. And in the what we call the Golden Triangle, the more western part of Montana, there were very few farmers who were growing those crops there. And we went and built a facility in Chester, Montana to handle those crops. And sure enough, farmers started growing them and putting them into their rotations and changing what they were doing because there became a viable market that made money for them.
1: You know, you know we should interrupt this to, to just identify your portfolio. So you're a company and, and you're dealing with grains. What, what are the grains? What are the grains that you're involved with now?
0: We deal in wheat and you know within every one of these commodities rogers are are a lot of different varieties and types so if you were in in washington and idaho you're growing soft white wheat primarily and that's a product that goes in mostly into the asian markets and used for more confectionery or low-rising type of doughs. and montana is about growing hard red winter wheat and hard red spring wheat hard red spring wheat is more of a a strong gluten, uh, pizza dough type of wheat. Hard red winter is more your bread flour kind of wheat. We deal in corn, soybeans. We deal in green peas, yellow peas, all kinds of lentils. Again, lentils is something that has about seven or eight different colors and sizes that can be grown. Uh, Chickpeas, flaxseed, canola, uh, safflower, Those are our primary commodities that we're dealing as well as dry beans as well.
1: So when you say you deal in them, then that means that your company is purchasing them from farmers or elevators or other marketers. And then some you do something to it, is it further processed or bagged or something to be exported around the world? What happens then?
0: So we have approximately 45 facilities across our footprint we're buying all these products from farmers and then taking them to the markets that demand them Um, we have processing plants for further adding value to the uh, peas lentils dry beans so we'll clean those we bag them into 100 pound bags 50 pound bags all the way down into one pound bags where we're distributing those through uh, local grocery stores Amazon, food chains, e-commerce markets as well. But really what we do is we like to say we make markets for farmers. So we're in touch with the food companies. We're in touch with the flour mills. We're in touch with the foreign governments that are buying these products. You know, the soybeans grown in our footprint are 95% going to the Chinese market. Wow. So we have those connections to export all those products.
1: So what makes the northwest of the United States and that northern tier that you're talking about so good for grain? I mean, people think if we, if we were saying we we're going to talk about cotton, they would guess it would be across the, you know, the south. Right. Uh, but if we told people, other people, as we are today, that we were talking about grains and the kind of grains, a lot of them would guess it would be in the northwest. Why is it so such a good spot to be able to grow grain?
0: in the uh, pacific northwest the majority of that area gets a lot of rain it's in a 20 to 23 inch rainfall so if you're in the palouse the yields are tremendous the quality of the grain is really good as well so if you go and look into the asian markets taiwan korea japan um philippines they love wheat coming from the pacific northwest It typically has better final end-use products we've always called it in montana the golden triangle where we grow hard red winter wheat north of great falls montana and that's a sought after wheat for the flour mills in the united states they like to buy that winter wheat because it has better quality uh creates a better quality flour
1: now yeah, but if you f- move further east then you get all the way over into montana where you spent some some time i don't think of of having that much water, or not as prevalent as uh, it, it, it is
0: as prevalent, but uh, so we have lower yielding wheat in Montana, but it's what grows well. It's the in between area there, right? So if you get into the eastern part of North Dakota, it's very good soil. It gets a lot of moisture. It's good for growing corn and soybeans. Montana is really good for growing wheat. It's really good for growing lentils, chickpeas, um, because they're low water use crops. And the, they work really good in rotation. It's the same in the, in the Washington, Idaho area where they grow a lot of chickpeas and peas. Those, those crops put nitrogen back into the soil, making a better soil. Mm. Uh, well, they, they are different styled crops, so broadleaves versus, versus grasses. Mm-hmm. So that, that rotation helps to uh, avoid different weeds, problems, different soil disease problems that you can treat by having that type of rotation into it.
1: So if we were back in some of that area, I don't know, maybe Montana, um, and you mentioned earlier that they were making the decisions that they'd like to try something like, like lentils. Mm-hmm. And go through that a little bit. What what might occur to a farmer um, you know, that makes that decision and thinks, so I want to give it a try? Because I'm guessing... They've got equipment and experience that was all something else. And and I don't know whether you can use the same combines and possibly the same tractors and trucks, but, but still, it, it's probably not a simple thing, is it, to be switching like that?
0: It's not a simple decision. You know, first off, if you're, say you're, you've been in a certain um, rotation with your wheat and you're using certain chemicals, you may have residual in your ground that may actually kill. The lentils or the peas and so you've got to get those out of your ground so a lot of them had had to think about okay i've got to change my chemical application clean my ground up take three or four years before i can get into growing those crops a lot of times you're going to need a different header for your combine because you are lower to the ground um, and you've got to be cautious of that you typically also might roll your ground after seeding peas and lentils as a, with wheat. You don't typically do that. So yes, you are you have to think about what are my equipment purchases that I'm going to need to get into this ground. Am I going to get into this for the long term to pay for the equipment that I'm going to need to get into it? But you're generally your seeder, your combine, and your trucks are all going to be the same, but you're going to need a lot of different accessories that might go on to those things to make handling it better. Not only that, you know, uh, you can handle wheat with a conveyor, a typical screw auger conveyor into your farm bins, but screw auger conveyors can be really hard on peas and lentils. So you have to think about belt conveyors instead of screw auger conveyors. So yeah, there's a lot of equipment decisions that have to be made, as well as how am I treating the ground that I'm growing this on to make sure that chemical rotations and fertilizer uh, applications work with all the crops that I might want to grow
1: you said something that caught my attention a few minutes ago and that that was that you have to be careful of what you follow now I'm wondering did, does that mean that say uh roundup for example would that would that kill lentils um
0: well it you know certainly when they're growing um, it would and roundup's not as big of a problem but Roundup residual in the soil, for instance, if we export lentils to uh, Europe, and Europe has like a zero tolerance for MRLs of, of glyphosate on the product, so you can get product into Europe and they will get rejected at the port because it has certain MRLs on it and we have to bring it all the way back, not a profitable endeavor.
1: It's almost it's almost like switching to organic in a way. I mean, organic, you've got to go what like three seasons of not using anything to right. be able to start producing something organically. But but this is something I think most of us wouldn't have thought about. You have to be careful the transition for trade reasons, like you just mentioned.
0: You do. You have to, you know, you have to have strong communication with the growers to make sure that they're not putting the the wrong products on it. You know, there's no laws against using glyphosate on lentils. <laughs> But we want to be really careful about it, because if we're exporting them, we're the one who bears the cost of that, of getting it rejected somewhere. So sure. You have those discussions with the growers to make sure that you're treating the food properly, so to speak.
1: So when you load these on a container and they go somewhere around the world, there's somebody that's inspecting at a port that can keep probing the load until they, uh, if they find an issue, they can reject the load. Is that, is that right? Right.
0: When they get to the final port, yeah, the the customs departments have authority to check what's the inbound product. We do our job by doing the same thing when we're loading the product and
1: knowing what we have so we don't run into a problem. Wow. Yeah. Boy, that's a lot to con- consider. And I'm wondering about this process again, back to these uh, the, the farmer that's growing something else. Do they, do they get a hold of your people? Do you have field workers that are somebody that's out there that can go out and visit with a farmer? And he says, I'm thinking about doing this. Well, I have a home for this if I start growing it.
0: Yeah, we've got uh, elevator managers across our footprint. So almost every one of those facilities has got an elevator manager that is actively having discussions with farmers in that area, trying to learn what do they want to grow so they can communicate that back to our merchandising staff who are out looking for the markets for this and uh, and being able to have that back and forth con- conversation about what do we think the world needs? I'll give you a, a great, for instance, You know, the United States used to grow somewhere around 180,000 acres of chickpeas for the longest time. And they were really only grown in Washington and Idaho, a little bit in California. And back in about 2014, uh, the world was really short on chickpeas and the markets were trading at about $2,000 a ton where they had normally been about eight dollars to $900 a ton. Everybody decided they wanted to grow chickpeas and the United States went from 180,000 acres to 800,000 acres of chickpeas and all the weather conditions were ideal. And so we we overraised the crop; the markets fell from two thousand right back to eight hundred, nine hundred dollars, and everybody that had grown these chickpeas that were expecting two thousand dollars had to let them sit in the bin for two, three, four years until the world could chew their way through those markets. And just prior to getting moved to my position today, I was just leaving Montana and. I spent from 2005 till 2016 really running our pea lentil chickpea departments, and I had so many conversations with farmers saying, "Don't do this. <laughs> <laughs> the world can't take mm. that kind of increase on a specialty crop." And uh, but they all said, "Ah, we're going to do it." And sure enough, you know, as soon as we got that production, the market fell, and we spent a lot of time chewing through finding different places for these to go what developed out of that was a lot of them ended up going into the pet food market towards wow. protein instead of the human food market and that has developed a market again in itself
1: wow man that, that those are exciting stories and i'm one other way that change may take place is when you hear from customers and potential clients and and I'm wondering about giving us a couple examples of that on the one hand we mentioned how there could be an international demand and they can say well we got to go find some whatever this grain is and they can go to a company like yours and help find them and maybe get that production going but what about say restaurant chains or supermarkets or natural food stores do you do you hear back from anyone like that saying i really am looking to use this kind of product if some if i could be sure it was going to be grown for me
0: absolutely so we'll get those food companies that come to us and say this is an ingredient we're looking at do you have any or can you get any and we we have those conversations and you know go back to the farmer so that we can get it raised and put it into the food chain i think one of those things that's really happening today with food companies is the discussion around regenerative agriculture, climate-friendly products, um, sustainability. And if you if you look now, these major food companies are making a statement and saying, you know, Mars, for instance, has said, we're gonna demand sustainable food chains for our ingredients into the products. Walmart um, just recently, take rice, for instance, They've come out and said, 2025, 100% of our rice will need to be regenerative, sustainable rice. And this is really the first year that there's even been production of regenerative, climate-friendly rice.
1: How do you give them the assurance that it's done? So if they come to you and say, I want rice that's grown that way, and that's a customer like Walmart, for example, and, and they say, oh, well, show me. I mean uh, what are you able to do when they want to they want to have some evidence that this is beyond uh, just a sales pitch
0: so it's a little bit you know in, in the organic world for instance farmers have to be organically certified by a governing agency within the area so like the state of montana has got a montana organic association and they certify farmers to be organically grown they'll go and check farms make sure how the practices are being done columbia grain has facilities that are organically certified facilities and we follow the processes and procedures necessary to be organic and all the way through the chain everybody's got a certificate that you continue to pass down until it gets to the food company and he can verify okay this food chain is an organic food chain the same thing is evolving for the regenerative, climate-friendly type of crops. So USDA, and in our case, we're working with a company called AgriCapture, and they've come up with um, climate-friendly practices for growing the rice, and it's all certified with these growers. So they're actually, AgriCapture is actually on the farm, double-checking the uh, water use, double-checking the uh, fertilizer applications, and soil sampling so that they can certify okay this production of rice is climate-friendly regenerative rice and then that certificate follows through to our packaging facility where we'll give it the stamp of certification and then we put it out to the food companies of the world this is a product that has been grown this way and it can be verified and can be certified and if you want to come back and double check,
1: you're more than welcome to. It's fascinating how this is all taking place. You know, when you talk about climate change and production of greenhouse gases and in agriculture, I know there's there are people that uh, are probably motivated by just doing the right thing. Maybe they feel strongly about it. But then there's also a lot of people that say, "Well, I'm not so sure." But if that's what the customer wants, then fine, <laughs> you know. And uh, so I, I would imagine you would have to be somewhat of a diplomat as far as you're you're talking up all of these different directions, and some of them, their inclination might be to just. Still, be deniers or doubters, and some some others uh, again are just saying, "Well, I'm going to do it because the right thing to do." It. My kids are coming back, and they they hate me, think I'm not being responsible. So, we're going to shift to something that's more environmentally friendly. I, there must be a question in there somewhere, Jeff. I'm just somewhere in there. <laughs> you know, I, I think what you're trying to get to is you know what what causes somebody to change.
0: And over the years, uh, I, I've been in this for 33 years, going on my 34th year, and I've had many discussions with farmers and i've talked to guys that have have said i'll never do it that way it'll never work that way because you know we're just too big of ag and we got to go and don't have time and at the end of the day it comes down to what is the what does a customer want sure he's at the end of the day he's the one making the determination do i buy this product or don't i buy this product and i still think there's there's questions about, you know, is regenerative going to be the thing and is it going to last? Is the consumer going to pay for it? Because that's the one who's going to have to pay for it at the end. So we're going to go down this path and we're going to set up some supply chains for it. Many companies are doing that. But the consumer is going to have to buy it. And if he doesn't, we'll be right back to where we were. But I think, when I think about farming, and whether it's grain farming or vegetable farming, in general, I I think farmers are pretty sustainable. They have a vested interest in their ground. They're trying to take care of their ground. I think 95% of them are every day thinking about what's good for this land, and how am I going to hand this land down to my son and my grandson so that they're out here farming. Farmers love to farm. And but today with ESG terms, uh, you know, large companies that want to put out the word that, you know, they're friendly to the climate. Now we have to get more certification that things are sustainable.
1: Yeah. And and remind everybody, the ESG acronym is for equity, sustainability, um, governance, governance. Yeah. So. which is is awkward I mean we don't see many examples of that anymore so it's funny that the ESG but the, there's all these different all these different things so it's no wonder some people get cynical or skeptical a little bit because some of it you just you know wonder we've got these terms floating all, all over the place all, you know DEI
0: all this stuff that it's great to talk about it but as again as I say I think farmers are really sustainable and I think when when you're looking at okay, we're growing these rotations and and now really farmers in our footprint are saying, okay, let's grow a grain, let's grow a pulse legume crop and let's grow an oil seed like a canola and a flax or a mustard. And that's what's really good for the ground. So they're already progressing and looking at how do I make my ground better? These crops actually feed off of each other. So there's solid proof that if you grow wheat behind a pulse crop, you're going to yield approximately 10% better than if you grow wheat off of summer follow ground.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is a, kind of an old concept. Uh, rediscovering uh, rotation or even in Native American communities used to be the three sisters that they talk about the way they plant things together and how they fed each other. And they, they learned that over 2000 years. Uh, and And that sense of being, in that soil and knowing what you needed to do to take care of it i agree with you i think i think for far and away the most part maybe almost 100 percent, farmers care about their land and they're trying to do to do the right thing and that raises another thought in my mind and that is with uh, climate change um there does seem to be some some shifts projected I mean, in the short term, we've got another El Nino coming up, and we might talk about what that might mean because uh, I I get confused every time I see that sometimes it's a lot of rain, sometimes it's less, and sometimes it's, you know, all these different things. But we may have a big El Nino year in in front of us again. But even if you just look at how there's shifting weather patterns, uh, you know, it could be that... Uh, uh, we're going to see parts of Oregon kind of move into um, Idaho. You know, or, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I'm wondering if you, if you see any of that, or you have people looking down the road like that and thinking that we may be able to grow grains, uh, more, a little more North and a little more East than we have up to now or anything like that. I, I don't see big pictures in that I,
0: weather changes constantly, uh, through my years in the business, we've had probably about four major droughts in Montana. Had them in the '80s, had them in 2000. Just had went through uh, a couple years of drought in Montana, and and then the next year you've got great moisture. This year we had fabulous crops. Um, North Dakota in the Red River Valley, you can have springs that are wet and you never get anything in the ground and it goes into prevent plant and next year everything's beautiful and, and we grow the, a better crop than we've ever had. Um, I don't put a lot of stock in the necessarily in overall climate change. I think what you've seen more of is you, maybe 25, 30 years ago, we didn't have the technology or, or people were farming a certain way for a long time, and that's the only thing they could grow, and this is how you did it. And as you know, our land-grant universities, and there's been more research done about different uh, cropping practices or different crops that you can grow, that's what's brought about change in crops. Mm-hmm. Forty years ago, nobody thought about growing peas and lentils and chickpeas in Montana. There was no market for it. Nobody was handling them people in the world weren't eating them and as communications got better the other thing i also watch you know how about wars wars affect food flow a lot and if people have displaced themselves out of syria and iraq and moved themselves into europe they've taken with them that that practice of eating chickpeas and lentils and they brought it in to those areas And that's increased the demand for it because all of a sudden you're you're eating these foods and you show them to your neighbors or they're in the store because as a consumer, you want that in a store in Germany, say, where you used to live in Syria. So it starts to flow into there and people look at it and say, hey, let's try this food. So I think, frankly, that wars have been a bigger uh, change to how foods flow and what is grown. And what increases and what decreases than climate?
1: Well, whether it's wars or wars and climates, people shift and these and conditions I, I shift. Say, I should say people migration, not yeah, so much. people. Well, that's right, right. And I think that, that that people are are moving and they're bringing their taste with them, and it's going to be farmers' jobs to be able to produce for them. But one thing that hasn't changed, and that is, it's hard to become a farmer and when you're working with with the farmers you're working with um um, how often do you find somebody that gets into it that just say, gee i want to be a farmer but they didn't come into a farm or a ranch they didn't inherit it or marry into it or, or something else but just you know one of these people that i often talk to that say gee i'd i'd sure like to be a farmer but to be a farmer growing the kinds of things crops that you're talking and I have some idea about how expensive combines are, and tractors are, and trucks are, and all these other sure. things. Uh, it, it's it's a lot. There, do you see yeah. any bright spots for making it easier for people to get in and small scale to start up into into the grain production business? I think it's really
0: rare, um, extremely rare, from what I've seen. And today, uh, it w- will be on the downside of it we just went through what about a 20 year period with relatively low interest rates right so buying equipment financing uh, your farm was much easier we you know we're back to 8% interest rates 9% interest rates and there's not that much margin in our business so farms will struggle you know somebody to try to break in and become a new farmer is going to be really difficult unless he can find uh, ground and a place that comes with equipment and gets the right lease that's really difficult even if i look at our business i would say this i see more of these small highly leveraged companies that are coming up for sale today because they can't afford to finance a business and we work on such a small margin there's no room for 8 9% extra interest cost to run the business
1: you know, I'm talking to some people on Farm to Table Talk that just would give anything to be able to farm. They're not able to raise kind of grains like you are, but they're talking about even sometimes a few acres, but yeah. to try to get to a level that they could support uh, a family, um, they're they're looking at needing a million dollars to get their hands on just just yeah. to get started. And you think, wow, uh, you know. And I've talked to people that were large farmers. And they want to bring a grandchild back into the business. The outlay is at least a million dollars in capital expenditures just to bring, you know, a young person back from college necessarily and say, I want to include them and be able to get them on a path that the farm or ranch will grow enough for them. It's tough. Uh, it's, It's very, very difficult. I guess one thing I wanted to ask you, though, if you looking at this perspective, you've worked with all of these grains and so forth. And when you look, look down the road, uh, what gives you the most encouragement? I mean, I was ending up here on kind of a pessimistic note of talking about how much money it takes to become farmers and and, lots of obstacles there. But what reasons do you find to be optimistic about the future?
0: Number one, we are in the food business, and people are going to eat every day, and so we need foods. What makes me optimistic is looking at food patterns change, uh, kind of a movement towards more healthy foods, and seeing the technology that has allowed us to con- to change the cropping uh, the the cropping patterns that we have that makes me optimistic and that makes me uh, enjoy the business so to speak watching farmers react to what consumers want and being a part of that supply chain to get it from the farm to the consumer
1: and satisfy a customer well you got an interesting perspective on it and you're seeing products that are coming up and in the ground of the ranchers and farms across the area that you're involved with and seeing customers and seeing that evolve across the world, uh, I, I really appreciate your taking the time to share that with us on Farm to Table Talk.
0: Roger, I appreciate being on here.
1: Jeff Van Pivenage, president and CEO of Portland-based Columbia Grain International. You can find them online at columbiagrain.com. Although most of you are downloading Farm to Table Talk from your favorite podcast suppliers, You can also find hundreds of Farm to Table Talk podcasts in our archives online at farmtotabletalk.com. If you like what you're hearing on our podcast, please subscribe to receive regular downloads and post a review so others will be joining us. On our website, you will find our email address so you can reach me directly with observations or suggestions. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Watson.